Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Elections do have consequences, and leaders really do matter. Grassroots voices and organizing can bring attention to a problem, but it's really the job of government, of our constitutional process, to put those policies in place. As modern history tells us, it's no easy task. Last night, we watched a State of the Union speech virtually devoid of ideas or programs or lofty goals to lift people up and, in the parlance of our times, to solve problems. It was a far cry from Bill Clinton's laundry list of small ball in his 1995 State of the Union, and even further from the broad goals set out by Lyndon Johnson. In fact, so much of the legislative battle today is not about, as some commentators have said, undoing the New Deal but rather undoing the remarkable achievements of Lyndon Johnson's great society. It is a list that includes Medicare, Medicaid, public radio and television, the Voting Rights Act, federal aid to education, consumer protections, creating the Departments of Transportation and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the great 1964 Civil Rights Act, all accomplished in five years while struggling with the disaster of the Vietnam War. None of it done through executive order, but through the traditional Article I powers of the Constitution. How did Lyndon Johnson do it, and why does it still matter so profoundly? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Joshua Zeitz. Joshua Zeitz is a contributing editor at Politico. He's taught American history and politics at Cambridge, Harvard, and Princeton, and he's written for the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Atlantic, and the New York Times. It is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Zeitz here to talk about his new book, Building the Great Society, inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. What is the perspective that we're beginning to gain on Johnson and what he accomplished? Looking back at Johnson beyond Vietnam and looking at the domestic side of of what he was able to accomplish in five years. Talk a little about that. Sure. You know, it's been 50 years this year since uh, his last year in, in office. So there have been a lot of 50-year retrospectives, not only on Vietnam, but on the Great Society and on his presidency, as, as there should be. Uh, and, I, and I think, or my, I hope in any event, that uh, some, of, some of the political and, and historic historiographical winds are shifting. You know, for many years he was remembered as a flawed giant, which is the, the title of a very fine biography that Robert Dalek uh, wrote uh, about Johnson, two-volume. In the sense that you know he left a, a considerable public uh, domestic policy legacy, but that his presidency was fundamentally tarnished by, and his legacy you know tarnished by uh, Vietnam. And I I think as well, you know, we live in a in a relatively conservative age, at least in in the, our politics. And there's been a sense that the Great Society was either a failure, that it was. Uh, a radical left-wing experiment that went wrong or that it's created, if you, if you sort of listen to Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell, that it's created a kind of generations of dependency on government. I think we're ready for a corrective lens on all that. Great society is still very much alive uh, and well. Uh, today, you know, 130 million Americans rely on it for health care through Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, 30 million children rely on it for school uh, lunches and, and breakfasts, without which they'd have food insecurity. 20 million families rely on it for SNAP. Uh, it would be unimaginable not to have federal aid to public education or uh, equal, uh, equal access to public accommodations or voting rights. Uh, and so these are all broadly popular measures. Um, and, and I think you know, it's time to restore some focus to Johnson and understand that you know, for whatever his flaws were, he, he left a country that was 
uh, that looked fundamentally different from the one that he inherited in 1963 as president. And it would it would be in many ways unthinkable to turn that clock back, even as it's perfectly legitimate and and right that we take a look at some of these programs and the ideas that animated them, uh, and and ask whether it's time to. To, to strengthen them or to, to think about changing them. Yeah, it's interesting. If, if one thinks about it in, in the historical arc since then, the perigee, the low point of it, was kind of in 1995 when Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over. It was really a repudiation of so much of the great society. That's right. I mean, you know, I think one of the ironies is that in the Democrats in the 25 to 30 years, even today, uh, post-Lyndon Johnson, uh, they fell into this this sort of trap. Uh, you know, when when Johnson's uh, White House aides and 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 cabinet officials were were formulating the War on Poverty and the Great Society programs, they they were looking. You know, they were they were shocked by how much poverty there was there was in the country because this was a very uh, a buoyant time. The, the economy was humming. The middle class was growing. The early 1960s. You know, liberals had to be reminded that there there were quite a few people who had been left behind. Well, they when they were looking at poverty, they were primarily looking at white poverty in the Appalachian areas and coal mining towns and post-industrial cities in the Midwest. But be, and, and, and most of the Great Society programs disproportionately benefited um, white people. That having been said, or the majority of the, the support went to white people, that having been said, because the administration focused so much on civil rights, um, it became easy for conservatives to caricature uh, Great Society liberalism as a as a vast collection of handouts to minorities. Even even today, you know, mm-hmm. white families benefit more from these programs than African American African American or Latino families. Um, but they got caught in this trap for 25 or 30 years, and there became this perception that somehow Great Society liberalism was a a, a massive program of redistribution of wealth and income uh, toward people of color. And it, it was wrong on two levels. One, um, a, again, uh, I, I think that the imagery uh, belied the fact that white people benefited from these programs more. But as well, uh, it was important to note that the, the Johnson administration took a fundamentally centrist approach to building the Great Society. They they considered for a, a brief moment the idea of, of wealth and income redistribution by way of a negative uh, income tax. Uh, or a jobs creation program, but they rejected it because they believed that in a in a growing prosperous uh, economy and society, where most middle class people had access to good wages, health care, pensions, what you needed to do was provide uh, poor people with the means to lift themselves up. So access to education or job training or health care so that they'd be healthy enough to work. Um, rather than some sort of redistribution of wealth. Uh, and so it was a fundamentally more centrist set of programs than we, we tend to remember. There's this difference, and you talk about it, of, of redistribution versus regenerative. And again, Bill Clinton later on talked about it as investment, which is how we kind of refer to it today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, so much of the, what the Johnson administration did was try to provide individuals with the opportunity to capture uh, uh, their share uh, of of a growing economy is uh, Walter Lippmann, who was then a uh, octogenarian, I think, progressive writer in 1964 said, you know, he was sort of fascinated by this. He said, like, in the 1930s, liberals would have argued that you should cut the pie up into smaller slices so that everybody can get a piece. But today, liberalism is all about growing the pie, right, investing in the economy, growing it so that there's enough for everybody. Um, and for those who don't have access to it, you, you, you make sure that they have qualitative 
assistance that helps them actually, you know, avail themselves of this growing economic opportunity. And so that was much of the idea behind it. And it was underpinned by, a, you know, a sort of public faith that experts had figured out how to manage the economy and sustain high growth rates of 4 or 5% a year, which are unimaginable today, and to do it at low rates of inflation. And there was a certain hubris. They thought that they could maintain that, you know, in perpetuity in, in later decades, particularly the 1970s and the 2000s. We found that wasn't the case. To what extent did Johnson and, and the many people around him, all of which you detail in the book, did they understand that this was a unique opportunity, that this was a perfect storm? I mean, Kennedy had tried to do some of these things not nearly as rapidly, not nearly as successfully. And one wonders, you know, if Johnson had wound up being the nominee in 1960, would he have been able to do these things in the way that he was ultimately able to do them? No, that's a great question, and I think you know the short answer to your second question is no. Um, you look at some of the uh, the press coverage about Congress on the eve of Kennedy's assassination, and you could, if you just take the date off of it, you you could imagine it was written yesterday. They talked about the dysfunction in Congress, the number of you know vital bills on health, education, and welfare, civil rights that were bottled up, regular appropriations bills were bottled up in committee. Uh, Congress was governing through a series of continuing resolutions, which in our day and age is a very normal thing, but it wasn't then. Um, it was a totally dysfunctional Congress, a conservative coalition in the House and Senate between conservative Democrats and Republicans um, effectively controlled each chamber. That changed. You know, Johnson um, benefited from two things. He benefited from Kennedy's death, which uh, delivered a tremendous amount of goodwill to him. People wanted to get around their, you know, rally around their new president. They wanted him to succeed, and he understood that and used that capital wisely. And uh, second, his landslide victory over Barry Goldwater had all sorts of down-ballot effects. And what that meant was that in starting in 1965, he had a Congress that was much more liberal and much more inclined uh, to support him. Um, without those two things, it's questionable that even a President Johnson in the early 60s could have moved all of these uh, programs through Congress. And yet, in that sense, getting it through Congress ironically proved to be the easiest part, and what the book looks at is what happened next. So it's one thing to sign Medicare into law. What's remarkable is that these young aides around him managed to figure out how to stand up Medicare, make it into a working program, Within 11 months from the day he signed the bill to the day the first checks were, were, were written, it was literally 11 months. Right. And they did this while they were desegregating hospitals and nursing homes throughout the South, using the Medicare dollars as leverage to do it. And when you look at the, all of the complications behind the implementation of the ACA, it is remarkable that, that in five years they were able to build all of these programs and do it while they were also mired in the Vietnam War. Right, they didn't have to build the website as ACA did. But, yeah, that's but, true. <laughs> they didn't have to build the website. And to be fair, you know, as many of them later noted, they also didn't have conservative think tanks taking them to court over every statute. Right. So that was a big difference. What did the, this group of people, and, and, and you can talk a little bit about who some of them were. Some of them are, are you know, for, for those of us that are old enough, they, they were household names at the time. What did they understand? Were they the best and the brightest, or what did they particularly understand about government and the process of running government that enabled them to make all of this work? Yeah, it's interesting. They were a combination, as one newspaper columnist said at the time, of, of Boston Brahmins and Texas Longhorns. I mean, some of them were Kennedy holdovers, people like Larry O'Brien, who was a very skilled political operative who stayed with Johnson 
ended up having a closer relationship with him than he did with John Kennedy, and he was the uh, the head of the Legislative Affairs Office and helped shepherd all these these bills through Congress. There were people like a bunch of guys from Texas, people like Bill Moyers, who we now know as the kind of uh, elder statesman of PBS, who at the time was a 29-year-old wonder kid working for Johnson as became the de facto chief of staff. People like uh, Joe Califano, who was a very bright lawyer who Johnson brought over from the Department of Defense and ultimately had running his domestic policy. Uh, people like Jack Valenti, who was not experienced in politics. He was a Houston-based PR and advertising man who knew Johnson socially and who Johnson trusted and thought just thought had a great native intellect. They all, I think what they shared, even though they had very different backgrounds, was a, a real commitment to public policy and governance. They took it seriously. So Johnson would read 300,000 words each week of policy memoranda that a staff sent him. Valenti would curate them and decide what went to Johnson. So Valenti was probably reading twice that many uh, words and policy memoranda each each week. Um, and they took expertise seriously. They, they leveraged the, um, the, the kind of collective knowledge uh, of all of the government bureaucrats at different departments whom they understood knew their subject matter well. Uh, and they believed that government, you know, because they believed the government could be a, a force for good in people's lives, they, they took the, the act of governing uh, quite seriously, which is a, a contrast, I think, to the, the current regime. There's also a sense that they weren't looking over their shoulder every second. They were focused, forward-focused in terms of how to make this work as opposed to how to sell it, how to make it palatable, how to make it look like something different, we'll get it done and nobody will notice. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are, you know, Johnson was not a particularly charismatic character, at least not a, a, a big crowd or in front of TV, and he certainly didn't have the magic that John Kennedy had. Now, he probably had it, you know, one-on-one or in a small room. He, he actually did have a lot of charisma. But there's, I, I read, you know, scores of memoranda going back and forth where all of these aides and Moyers and Valenti and Horace Busby and, uh, you know, the, the, they're all sort of discussing and just how bad they are at selling their own programs. I mean, they realized that they, they, they realized or they thought that they didn't have a particularly effective PR machine and they also thought that they didn't have a president to work with who, who was great at selling. Um, so they spent a lot more time focused on doing and building um, and it was a less cutthroat environment then, too. Uh, you didn't have a, an, an adversarial media in the way you do now. Talk about how race and things like the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, sort of fit into this mix of stuff or was separate and apart from. Because on the racial issues, there's an element that, that only Lyndon Johnson could have gotten this done. It was, you know, the, the Nixon to China kind of thing because he was a Southerner. Yeah, I mean, he defied, I mean, he defied odds, right, or he defied expectations, rather. He'd been a relatively conservative Democrat uh, on race issues in the Senate and then certainly in the House. Um, though he was deeply committed to the issue, uh, and he was sort of untethered from the political needs of Texas once he was vice president and then president, uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of accounts sort of treat civil rights as its own standalone issue, but it was, it was fundamental to the Great Society. You know, this, this idea that you had to unlock opportunity for individuals to rise to, you know, according to their own talents in a, in a, in a world where the economy was growing and prosperous, that Johnson and his aides realized that Jim Crow artificially distorted that, that view. They'd artificially distorted labor markets and housing markets. It barred people from having full political empowerment. Um, and they knowingly um, 
they, starting with Johnson and down to every aide, they knowingly spent down their political capital on this issue. I mean, early in his presidency, uh, Johnson was asked by one of his aides, "Why do you want to? Why do you want to push civil rights? It's, it's, it's. You know, you're going to spend all your capital on it." And he said, "Well, hell, what's the presidency for?" And that was the sort of governing philosophy. So, even as they were constructing the Great Society programs, they were using those same programs to desegregate public institutions in America. If you wanted Medicare dollars and you were a hospital in Mississippi, the White House was actively working with you to make clear that if you didn't desegregate every ward, room, and floor of that hospital, you weren't going to get Medicare dollars. And they did the same with schools. There are these you know, famous weeks when Joe Califano uh, and a bunch of uh, his staff assistants are working out of his basement office in the West Wing going district by district, school by school throughout the South, you know, in July and August, trying to cajole each school district into meeting targets and goals for desegregation that the White House and HEW, the, the, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, had set. And Johnson himself would walk in and out, you know, periodically between meetings, come in into the room and check out the maps and look at the district by district improvement their progress and tell them to call particular congressmen or state officials to, to get them to cajole those local school officials. And he'd yell, get them, get them, you know, get every last one of them. He didn't want to cut the school funding off. He wanted the schools to desegregate. Um, and it was a remarkable granular type of uh, detail that they got into. What was the nexus between all of these great society programs and all of these really smart people doing the things that you talk about in the book and Vietnam? Were the mistakes of Vietnam because there just wasn't enough bandwidth, to put it in contemporary terms? I think it's important to remember that there was just almost universal consensus on Vietnam. Um, Johnson felt that if he, you know, if, if Vietnam fell to communism on, it, on his watch, he'd never be forgiven for it. The Republicans would never forgive him for it. And he was right. And with the exception of George Ball, the Undersecretary of State, there was no real high-ranking official before 1967, really, who was questioning the wisdom of this. And there were few members of Congress who questioned the wisdom of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that one of the key problems this posed was that he couldn't quite square with the American people or with Congress the full extent and cost of the war. If he asked for a tax increase, Congress would tell him, conservatives in Congress would tell him that he had to cut domestic spending. So he got into a sort of downward spiral where he hid the cost of the war in a series of you know, supplemental appropriations bills and other legislation, and it created this credibility gap for him. I mean, ultimately, the tragedy of Vietnam was that it, it, it limited the extent to which he could invest in his great society programs when he was president, uh, and it fractured his political coalition in a way that, you know, made his exit in 1968 almost inevitable. And finally, Joshua, was everything that Johnson did, everything that we see with respect to the Great Society here, how much of it was sui generis to the moment and how much of it might inform today? Uh, I think you have to contextualize it, place it in that moment. I mean, the political and economic conditions were unique. We, we don't live in a very similar age right now. Um, but there are certain elements of it that I think are, are instructive today. Um, if you contrast today's White House uh, with Johnson's White House, it's night and day in terms of the way in which they approach public policy or even the seriousness of the job. I mean, Johnson would work a two-shift day. You know, he'd be up at 6 a.m. reviewing policy papers with his aides, stay in the Oval Office doing meetings, go for a swim, take a nap at about 2 in the afternoon, 
and then he would work again until about 8 and go up to the residence, have dinner, and then do his night reading until 2 a.m. There was no quote-unquote executive time. And the aides were expected <laughs> to be as steeped in, uh, in public policy um, as he was. And, and you know, I, I, I think there have been conservative Republican presidents for whom this has also been the case. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the, the actual intellectual framing of the Great Society, that, that was sui generis to the time, but, but there, are, there are certainly components of this that you can extract and take lessons from today. Joshua Zeitz, the book is Building the Great Society, Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.